Hi, and welcome to another episode of the podcast in partnership with Transit Matters. Um, my name is Josh Fairchild. Uh, I'm a board member for Transit Matters, and I'll be your host, as well as... Jim Aloisi, also a board member of Transit Matters. Today, uh, we've got two guests who we're excited to have on, the outgoing CEO and executive director of Massport, the Massachusetts Support Authority, Tom Glenn, is with us, as well as John Prankovicius, who's currently the chief financial officer, has been the chief financial officer for over a decade, and will be the acting CEO when Tom leaves the post on November 16th. Massport, as everyone knows or should know, um, runs uh, three airports, uh, Logan International Airport, Hanscom Field, and Worcester, uh, runs the port cargo facility and, and many of the port facilities in, in Boston, among other things. It's an essential component to the local and regional and even statewide economy, an important job under any circumstances. And we thought we'd have a conversation today uh, with Tom and John about um, Massport, about certain elements of its operations, and, and uh, try to get a sense of... Um, a place that many people may only see once or twice a year as they're traveling in and out of the city. So thanks for being here, Tom and John. Good to have you. Um, do you want to kick it off, Josh? Yeah, I thought we would start with, um, you know, it's not every it's not every day, it's very uh, infrequently that we have the ability to talk to someone who has both the historical span and the multi-sectored perspective. Um, you know, being a GM of the MBTA under, under uh, Governor Dukakis, um, um, working um, at the top of um, a large uh, healthcare provider, uh, their system, and also now um, several years at the helm of Massport um, to discuss historical and current reverberations of the distinctiveness of uh, Logan Airport. Um, it's hard. I'm not the most well-traveled, but I've done a fair amount of, of domestic traveling. And at least in the U.S., it's hard to think of a comparable airport as far as the closeness to the downtown uh, financial hub of a, of a large regional area, um, as well as its connectiveness um, to the downtown and ha having mass transit as uh, being on the backbone of mass transit. And, you know, to take it further, most other cities have gone in the absolute opposite direction, uh, I would say, since probably the late 50s, early 60s. If you think of Denver airports, a good example of being way, way, way out in the boonies. You wouldn't even really call it Denver. You can't even see the mountains, basically. And us being just cheek and jowl with downtown. So I was hoping you would talk about the decisions that led to that, doubling down on that urban airport approach, as well as how that reverberates, um, you know, there's positive and, ex and positive and negative externalities um, to the citizens, the residents, uh, the businesses, um, but also it's in many ways a, a boon to the region. Uh, so thank you for that uh, question. It has uh, several parts, obviously. I would say that uh, going back and reading some history, and, you know, uh, Jim is one of the uh, better historians of Massport and transportation issues in general. But uh, I've read that the original airport serving the greater Boston area was in Framingham and that when airmail became a d dominant way of communicating uh, back in the uh, 1940s, there was started to be a concern on behalf of the business community and the leadership in those days that the Framingham Airport was too far and it would take too long to get the airmail into the city. So they started to look for another location and they came up with a location in East Boston. Um, so once that decision was made, then 
uh, over time, East Boston and Logan have become, you know, more and more of a centerpiece of the economy. Um, we do have a very small footprint, despite our proximity to uh, the city, maybe because of our proximity to the city. So, for example, the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, which is one of the bigger airports, it's not the biggest, is bigger than Manhattan. So their ability to, you know, expand and, and make decisions, they have a lot of flexibility that we don't have because we're small and we're near the downtown, which is good for the economy, but obviously it changes the dynamics we have with the neighborhoods, uh, East Boston, Winthrop, and South Boston particularly, but also a number of others. So, you know, I'd like to think in the end, we've been able to create kind of a win-win where we recognize the obligation we have to those neighborhoods. And as a result, we've done some more things that maybe, you know, we wouldn't uh, have done in a different circumstance. Um, but it really does define the size of the airport, the proximity to the, um, the financial district and the business district, and the proximity to the um, neighborhoods really does define kind of who we are, and it affects our values and uh, what we can, what we can and can't do. There was an effort, uh, which Jim may know more about than I, in the early 1990s to think about relocating or creating a satellite airport for Logan. Um, but uh, my understanding is that, as you might imagine, none of the communities that were mentioned as possible locations were very enthusiastic about that opportunity. Uh, one group looked at expanding Hanscom, you know, which affects four towns in the Metro West area, and I think there were some other locations as well. So at the end of the day, they couldn't come up with an alternative strategy for a satellite or an alternative, and so that kind of put things back on uh, the existing Logan and the uh, relations we have with the communities. I think that Lo when I think of Logan Airport, I think about it being, it's sort of, it's, the differentiators are there. Certainly one of them is it's on a constrained footprint. I mean, there are others, LaGuardia, Lindbergh, and, uh, and San Diego might be the best similar examples. But Logan certainly has a constrained footprint. It also, we can talk a little bit about people may not understand the notion that partly its operations, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, are defined by its being primarily an origin and destination airport as opposed to a hub. Can we talk about that a little bit, what that means and how that, how that factor plays into, for example, what airlines service Logan, how travelers deal with moving from place to another? Sure. So, uh, you know, we serve uh, probably this year around 40 million passengers. Um, you could have another airport that served 40 million, but as Jim is saying, um, maybe let's say a third of those would be landing from a, another airport and transferring and then flying out. Uh, you know, Atlanta is an example or JFK is an example. Whereas at Logan, pretty much people are driving to the airport and getting a flight uh, and there's no, very little transfer going on uh, within the airport. So that has a big impact on ground transportation. If we were at an airport where there was a, lo a lot of transfers, the 40 million would have a different impact on the demand for parking, uh, transit, and... Um, within the airport. Right. Yes. Um, so, uh, so the fact that we're origin and destination has a big impact on the ground transportation needs that we generate, and then it does affect to a certain extent, the way the uh, airlines plan their route system. Um, and 
but I think the biggest impact is really on the ground transportation. So when I when I think about Massport and Logan in particular, and we're focusing on Logan primarily because it's a significant you know, a very significant part of the business. It's 85% of the budget. 85% of the budget. I think I'm going to throw out three S words, sustainability, service, and security, uh, as in my mind being sort of the, the, the key frameworks of, of what you need to be thinking about when you're thinking about managing Logan International Airport. Mm-hmm. When you talk about 40 million passengers today, we're projecting – in the next 10, 20 years, what are the projections? It's going to grow, we believe. Right. We're still working on that. I mean, I think, you know, you have some tricky variables. So we're in the longest um, recovery, I think, in American history from the 2008 recession. So how long is that going to survive? Uh, second, the price of oil. So, you know, oil was uh, up as high as $100 a barrel. Then it went down to like $40 a barrel and we're crept back up. Now, so what's the impact of that going to be? Um, and then, you know, acts of terrorism can have a big impact on the demand for passengers. So the year before 9/11, we served 29 million people, and the year after, we served 22 million people. So that had a huge impact. Now you can say, well, that's a once in a lifetime, once in a generation, we hope. once in a hundred year. But nonetheless, the point being that people do react to things. So it's very hard to make a straight line projection. But we're working on that with the FAA to try to come up with something that we can put forward and, and that people can But the, the uh, trend lines are strong, and they're, and they're generally, they, they go up, and there was a fairly quick recovery turnaround after the, the tragedy of, of 9-11. So my question really is, how do you think about, as passengers grow on this constrained site, and as we think about moving people to and from the airport, sustainability, um, I want to leave security to a side because I think that's a discipline unto itself. But sustainability and passenger service, how, do you, how does an institution deal with those issues mm-hmm. knowing that this, the passenger growth is probably going to continue in a very healthy way, which is a good thing for the economy, but challenging when you're trying to make the place sustainable from a, an emissions perspective? And, and, and providing the kind of service that people expect from a first-rate airport. Right. So, you know, we have the size footprint that we have. It's never going to grow. Um, so I, I would break the answer down to kind of two components. So off-campus, which maybe is the most important. So one of the things we've started to look at um, to encourage even more folks to use Logan Express um, is remote baggage check-in. So we think that people... And we've seen this work in some other airports, still a limited number. If they could go to the Framingham Logan Express and check their bag and it would show up on the airplane and they would just get on the bus and they would be uh, be good to go, that would have a big positive impact. Uh, this is something that uh, our former colleague Fred Salvucci mentioned to me years ago vis-a-vis South Station, maybe South Station, maybe North Station. So you try to move the activity away from the airport campus. Um, and uh, uh, there's a lot of interest in that. And, and, you know, Orlando is famous for it, but, you know, their whole system was designed, you know, in a different kind of way. But there are other airports now that are doing that. Um, we've also committed to expanding the uh, Silver Line. We paid for eight coaches in the original fleet. We've committed to paying for 16. We spent about $20 million a year on high-occupancy vehicle initiatives, and that needs to expand. So we're trying to move as much of the activity as we can off the airport. 
But once you get to the airport, what we're looking at is an automated people mover, which, again, they have in some other airports. It's about a 10-year, billion-dollar project. But it would mean that you could take the blue line to the airport station and get off, and then a vehicle would take you all the way over to E, C, B, A, and the rental car center. So we think that would have a big impact on reducing the congestion to accommodate the existing congestion and potential future growth. So two kind of big ideas, remote baggage check-in and uh, people mover. So the people mover is not precluding, I, I had thought I had read somewhere or someone had thought it was precluding the connection to the Blue Line station, but it doesn't do that. No, no in fact, we've already committed as part of the negotiations with state environmental officials uh, to expand Terminal E that we would connect the Blue Line station at airport to Terminal E. And that would be maybe a quarter of the ultimate people kind of in for nickel and for a dime. If you're going to do it, maybe you should just do it and serve the whole airport. But it's a big, you know, a billion dollars is, is a lot of money. It's, it's another reason, in my view at least, I'd maybe put you on the spot a little bit here, but, you know, connecting the blue line and the red line so someone at Kendall who's got to be on, an air, on Emirates Air to Dubai doesn't have to take an Uber into East Boston but can, can get their themselves on uh, a seamless transit connection, that would be pretty pretty uh, sustainable from a mobility perspective. Yeah, I did a lot of work on that uh, notion when I worked at Partners Healthcare because the MGH has a lot of connections with Revere and it would be a big benefit. I think the question, if you're the Secretary of Transportation, though, is cost and benefit and where that project fits, you know, described, you know, kind of as a solo, it, it sounds pretty good, but how does it stack up? Because the projections we've seen, it would not add a huge number of passengers, and maybe if you're going to spend six, seven, eight hundred million dollars on the T, is that, you know, should that be at the top of the list or should some other project? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it'll be some induced demand. I also, the, there was a, the report that the Secretary recently put out showed a pretty, uh, I think it was under $500 million cost for cut and cover to make it happen. Right, and so, for how many additional passengers? Yeah. Well, I think they need a, I, the answer is induced demand will make it pretty robust. So how many additional yeah. passengers? <laughs> well, I think this brings up a, a really good point about sort of dual considerations you have to hold in your mind. Um, I'm really fascinated by the idea of the off-campus uh, baggage handling um, because if you think about um, trying to encourage folks to, uh, passengers to take transit, one of the biggest uh, hindrances to that is transfers on transit with luggage. Right. Um, and so if you can reduce that by having your baggage handling at major train terminals uh, or transit terminals, that, that would really affect that in, in a positive way. But one of the other considerations is um, because you're so proximate to the downtown transit transfer hubs, um, you, you're not only, you know, most airports are at the end of a transit line or further towards the end. Um, whereas all, most passengers coming to Logan are oftentimes having to come through the central business district or through some of our major tran- transportation hubs. So to the extent that you're encouraging uh, transit ridership uh, by passengers, you're also increasing demand on the, the most in-demand portions of our transit system. So I wonder how you hold those two things in mind and, and weigh the options of what's good for Logan and how that affects the city. You know, I think we have a good relationship with the uh, the MBTA and with the new general manager and with the secretary. You know, I think w- we try to kind of stay in our own lane. So we are advocates for more T, more HOV. We have the highest use of HOV of any airport in the country now. But how it fits in with their 
trade-offs that they have to make about the green, the red, the blue, or the orange. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's in our lane. I think that's kind of in their lane. So I agree with you that it does have an impact, but, um, you know, they're looking at a lot of variables that we're not, you know, privy to. So I, I kind of defer to them. Well, then I guess to, to pick on a, a single example that might be more in your lane would be transit um, to and through the seaport. And as that connects to Logan and also to South Station, um, because those are, you know, you're obviously the ground lessor on a lot of those holdings. And that development has been, I think, a boon or you've hoped for, the way you've designed it is to be a boon for the for Massport. Um, how do you consider the trade-offs between you know, transit to, through, um, from your properties and the way that interplays with the needs of a business district that's growing there. So when the original Silver Line discussions were taking place, uh, Massport agreed to pay for eight of the 32 coaches, which we did, which I think was a significant contribution to the success of that district. And now uh, we've agreed to pay for 16 of the next generation of coaches. So I think we've tried to be supportive of the things that we can be supportive of. We also uh, contributed a quarter of a million dollars a few years ago to do a transportation study with the T, with the city, to try to figure out how to unravel some of the challenges that we face uh, in transportation in that neighborhood. So, you know, I think we've tried to be a, a team player, but... Um, there are, there are a lot of tough problems down there because the growth is happening much faster. We're at the level of, of growth down there that we predicted in 2035. So, you know, the Silver Line was supposed to last, you know, longer in terms of being able to carry a decent percentage of the folks. And now that we're seeing that kind of rapid growth, um, you know, that that's something that all the transportation agencies are trying to work on together and, and come up with some, some, uh, some improvements. So one of the... Uh, yeah, obviously, an issue with uh, with Massport and its facilities, both on the Logan side and the Seaport District side, is the relationship it builds with its the communities that are adjacent to it. And I think there's a general view that those community relationships are strong and have been uh, strengthened over the course of the past decade or more. Um, but I'd ask both of you actually to comment on on the you know are there trade offs? Uh, how do you how does the CEO of a, of an important business like Massport um, deal not just with the delivery of service to customers, passengers, um, tenants, but also find the time to make sure that the community relations are are thought, thoughtfully approached, handled with care, and uh, and are proactively addressed. So I'm going to let John take the first shot because he sits on the board of the East Boston Foundation and has for many years. So that's a great situation where he's wearing a CFO hat and then he's also wearing a community hat. So mm -hmm. he, he, I think he's in a good position to try Thanks, to address Tom. that. Great question, question, Jim. Uh, I think uh, it's important that we be a good neighbor, uh, a, a, a good corporate citizen, because I think uh, Tom has demonstrated, because I think the relationships that you – mentioned that have been strengthened over the last decade, I would argue are a result of the great work that he has done uh, in moving Massport closer to the neighborhood than further apart because it's understood that to get some of the projects that we needed to accomplish to meet some of the demand, uh, we need to uh, invite the neighborhood uh, leadership in and have a discussion uh, in that uh, 
uh, in that area. And I think we were able to do that very effectively uh, in East Boston. We were looking at uh, adding seven gates uh, to yeah. the international terminal, uh, as well as the lifting of the cap in the 5,000 spaces. We engaged the community. We had a open dialogue with them during that uh, 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 time period. Uh, and they came up with a list of uh, important mitigation projects that they uh, were interested in for us pursuing, uh, specifically, I would say, Piers Park too, mm -hmm. um, and uh, extending the East Boston Foundation uh, and the successes that have been accomplished through that mechanism over the course of the last uh, almost two decades uh, now. So I think we are mindful, I am mindful, Tom is extremely mindful given his um, experience over time that engaging the community while you're doing these projects is paramount to success. Uh, and I plan on continuing that. Thank you, John. I would get uh, back more to purely discussing airports. Um, and, you know, at the top, we mentioned that um, there's two airports, uh, or actually three airports that you oversee. Um, but, you know, there's, there's Hanscom and um, um, the one in, in Worcester, Worcester Regional, is that what it's called? Yeah. So, um, do you think of, of the other two airports as um, as a system? As you know, c can we transfer some um, some of our business, uh, some of our flights uh, and passengers from one airport to the other? Um, especially, you know, considering the fact of the congestion issues we've talked about before, and to the extent that passengers have trouble reaching the airport, you know, that impacts your business. Um, and how do you think about that also in terms of other regional airports um, that might otherwise act as the kind of uh, regulator of, of overflow, um, especially considering that, you know, for example, TF Green is connected by rail um, to, to the Boston uh, uh, Central Business District, even if that rail connection has a lot that could be improved about it. So, you know, I think the question of uh, how we think about having a strong regional system begins actually uh, with high-speed rail to New York. So back in the early 90s when I was working at the MBTA and Secretary Salvucci was kind of leading the charge, I don't think anybody predicted except maybe Fred. So now more people take the train to New York than fly. So that's a big impact on reducing the number of passengers at Logan. Second, um, we've invested about $100 million in the Worcester Airport. So uh, JetBlue now has a, a daily flights to Orlando in Fort Lauderdale and JFK. Uh, American Airlines has two flights a day to Philadelphia, and uh, Delta Airlines is planning a flight to Detroit next summer. So I think we've, you know, we've been pretty successful. I mean, we're fortunate, you know, John was the CFO in Worcester before he joined Massport. So we really understand, you know, the importance of that. Worcester is the second biggest city in New England. It's bigger than Manchester, Providence, Hartford. So we have a lot of optimism, and uh, uh, a couple weeks ago I was out speaking to one of the chambers of commerce in the Metro West region, because if we can convince people in the 495 belt to go west instead of east when they want to connect to one of those cities, that will have a big, big impact. Um, Hanscom is pretty much of an airport, uh, a little, very small amount for the Air Force, but principally for private aircraft, and that's the way that the people in the surrounding communities would like to keep it. I think with uh, the Manchester Airport and TF Green, um, TF Green is still, I think, uh, doing reasonably well. They have expanded a lot over the years. Um, when Southwest Airlines approached them, uh, 
maybe 15 years ago, they uh, really got on board with Southwest and they did some significant expansions. Manchester, for some reason, has seen a decline in passengers. I'm not quite sure why. But, um, you know, I think for people who live north of Boston, that is another alternative. And people who live south, you know, have the alternative at, uh, at TF Green. Um, but the things that we can directly affect, you know, I think we've done a, an okay job trying to support, you know, alternatives and uh, really strengthen the Worcester Airport. Do you think that every time I read an article about uh, the Worcester Airport and the investment that, that Massport's done there, it's always there's always this uh, parenthetical about the difficulty technically of landing there um, in different weather conditions. Is, is that overblown? So it is on a very uh, unusual location for an airport, which is, is on a hill. So it tends to, you know, have more experience with fog and stuff. But part of the hundred million, uh, Massport and the FAA invested about thirty million in a so-called Category Three landing system, which would be the same as you'd have at Logan. So that has dramatically reduced the number of times that uh, planes are unable to uh, to land because of the weather. You know, almost to the same as it would be at at Logan. So that issue, I think we've we've tried to tackle, and we had a lot of support from. Congressman McGovern and, you know, the federal uh, delegation to try to make that happen. So I, I think that hopefully will be kind of more in the in the, the background or in the kind of the history of the airport and not as much of a factor as it going forward as it was in the past. That's good to know. Uh, last question about the Worcester Airport. Um, you know, we've spoken a lot about the transit connection uh, to Logan and improving how, how that can be improved. And when I've looked at or have looked into, you know, flights in Worcester, I've thought, well, it sure would be helpful if there was some sort of a transit connection. I think it would be difficult maybe to do a rail spur up to the Worcester Airport, but perhaps, you know, some, some sort of a express shuttle um, from the Worcester um, train station to, to the airport. And if that was combined with, you know, the, the off-site baggage handling that you mentioned earlier, is that something that's being considered or you think is a reasonable possibility that would help maybe folks in the Metro West choose that airport over Logan? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say two things. I mean, I, in a way, I'd say the same thing to you I said to Jim about the Red to the Blue. So where does that fall on the priority list? If, if you sit in the GM seat, you know, there's a lot of great ideas, but you got to, you know, the, the job is to kind of sort them out. So, uh, you know, I don't know where that would fall on that list uh, since I'm not sitting in that seat anymore. And second, um, you know, I think it's difficult. Uh, we've looked at, you know, a, a, a number of transportation options around there, but you know, there, are, um, there aren't big open fields there waiting for somebody to put in a road or a, you know, a transit line. So, you know, you're talking about a fairly disruptive uh, addition to those towns that uh, would be uh, affected by that. You know, and I think that I, I worry these days, you know, if you go back uh, extending the red line from Harvard Square to Alewife, moving the orange line from Washington Street as an elevated line underground over near Columbus Avenue, even uh, uh, taking the green line down near the station, putting that underground. These are all things that Fred Salvucci did when he was secretary. I don't know if you can do those today because there's so much concern that people have about their kind of normal um, – existence, that they're very resistant to these big infrastructure projects. So I think it's getting harder to do big infrastructure projects. And the ones that you mentioned and the one that Jim mentioned, I think we both have challenges on that score, you know, in addition to the, uh, to the funding. I think, that's a, I think that's a big deal, that we have to be mindful of what our previous generations did with adding the silver line, extending the, the red, moving the orange, the big dig, cleaning the harbor. I mean, all of these projects 
you know, created um, issues, but people saw the, the, you know, the bigger good over time. So I, I just think that's something we have to keep in mind. Tom, if I can just add, I think, uh, Josh, the, the Worcester Airport uh, had 400,000, close to 400,000 passengers a while back. Uh, our goal was to get to that junction. I think at that point, the conversation about um, different modes and, 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 and opportunities to go uh, and bring more passengers in a mode that uh, would facilitate growth uh, is a conversation we can have at that point. So I would just, just put that in, in, in perspective uh, on that subject matter. So I want to move away from Logan for a minute. I want to talk about the seaport and in particular, the issue of uh, Conley Terminal and cargo. H how optimistic are you that that terminal can remain competitive or be competitive into the century, given, again, the constraints, the roadway constraints and the rail connection constraints that I think, you know, for better or for worse, hold back uh, a lot of growth there? So... Uh Connolly Container Terminal, which is in South Boston, has grown 30% in the last five years. Meaning 30% so more cargo more coming in? Yes. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think that it has kind of a niche market, which is kind of eastern Massachusetts, uh, some of southern New Hampshire. Uh, so in that market, it's very, very competitive. And the only real alternative is New York. Um, we hear from the companies, the trucking companies, that they can spend uh, a day or two or even three waiting to get pick up a, a container, whereas we don't have that situation at all. We have a very kind of efficient situation. So because of that, um, you know, we're pretty optimistic. And, you know, we have relationships now with a lot of the uh, container companies. Um, second, we are deepening the harbor to accommodate the bigger ships. Third, we're expanding the terminal itself so we have more room for more containers and also buying new cranes because bigger ships require bigger cranes. Um, so, you know, I think the people who've looked at it, which is ourselves and, you know, other people in the public sector, feel like it's a good investment. It's being very successful and, uh, you know, it's an important part of the working port. We, you know, we support 7,000 blue-collar jobs across the four businesses that we run in the working port. So, you know, a lot of cities are dying to get blue-collar jobs in the city. We have them. We just want to make sure we don't lose them. Those blue-collar jobs include fish processing? Correct. And let's just say a word about that and the synergies between that business and the airport. So one of the kind of ironies is uh, there is, uh, despite the struggles that the fishermen are having, <clears throat> the seafood processing industry is actually growing. Um, North Coast Seafood, which is in uh, South Boston in the Seaport District, processes about 100,000 pounds of fish in an eight-hour shift. Uh, much of it comes in from the airport, and much of it leaves through the airport. So even though the original location was because it was close to the fish beer and the fish stock, the fact that it's close to the airport actually is a big uh, plus for the uh, seafood processing industry. So uh, we think that's going to continue to grow, whether it's Legal Seafoods or North Coast or, or Stavis or any of the, you know, the big companies down there. And, uh, you know, you can go to a restaurant in California and order salmon, and it will have come from South Boston. It's 
pretty impressive. Speaking of the container um, terminal, I, I've wondered at what point, if we are experiencing continued growth there, um, at what point would it, or if, if ever, would it be helpful to have um, a, a rail connection, a freight rail connection? I know that there's been discussion um, that hasn't really gone anywhere yet to date as far as using the tracks that still exist um, there for transit or passenger rail. Um, I wonder if that's a conflict. So we've had a number of conversations with Congressman Lynch about that topic, and we actually commissioned a study. So um, the short answer is the Prudential Center is too low. And so in order to make it efficient, you have to have double stack. But double stack trains would be higher than the bridge that goes under the Prudential Center. Can we lift the Pru? And then it... That's not a. I, I, an if anyone is capable of that, I'm sure <laughs> it's a team we both know and love. Um, so, in addition to that, I think there's about another 125 bridges which were also built, you know, in the 1800s and the early 1900s when no one thought about double stack. So, even if you solve the problem at the Pru, the whole railroad system didn't contemplate this. So that's why we've decided that we really can't pursue that um, and. Uh, but we, we did spend a fair amount of money trying to figure out to make sure there was nothing that some other city had figured out that we hadn't figured out. But it, it, at, the, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it doesn't really work. So yeah, we have to wrap this up. Um, Massport has a sort of historic uh, reputation for, for attracting good talent, keeping good talent, being um, a fairly first-rate environment for people to work at. Um, that is sadly not necessarily the case for many other state agencies and authorities. Massport has, a, I think, a, a unique uh, 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 reputation, good reputation in that sense. What's the, what's the secret sauce? What's the, what are the elements that come together um, other than, you know, obviously a strong balance sheet? But what are the elements that come together to make that happen that are lessons that, that we can apply elsewhere? So I think that um, part of it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. People see it as a good place to work, so you know people continue to want to go to work there. Uh, I think there is value in the structure of the authority, which doesn't have all the checks and balances, and it's easier to get things done so people who might be more attracted to the private sector feel like, well, this is public sector. But at the same time, you know, it's a little bit easier to get things done. Uh, there's accountability, but... Um, it's it's streamlined accountability, and that I think is attractive to people because we compete in construction and in IT, you know, with all the companies you know in Eastern Massachusetts. So we have to have a pretty good um, situation for folks. And I think that um, and inherited a strong team from Tom Kinton, but I think people like being part of a team, and I think we have a, a kind of a team atmosphere in the way the place operates as opposed to a more traditional kind of siloed system. So, but I'd be interested in, John's been there longer. He's been there through a couple of different um, CEOs, so he may have some perspective. Uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, a great question, Jim. I would say that Massport has many different businesses that it operates into that I think provides people opportunity to come in and make a difference. Uh, and look at a, a complex issue, make recommendations to either improve the business side or improve the customer service side or use technology and enhancing the customer's experience. And I think w that 
environment is afforded uh, at Massport, whether you're at Logan Airport uh, looking at the concession program or looking at the ground leasing programs or in the real estate business or the maritime business. All of these uh, sub-businesses provide stimulation for people to come in and uh, want to make a positive difference. And you have to balance both your uh, your your uh, educational background in the in the area of uh, business uh, finance or technology uh, with uh, different skill sets to round out uh, uh, a program that makes sense, and that's what I think provides uh, Massport a, a higher opportunity to attract talent because they can make a positive difference. All right. Well, thank you both for coming today, uh, Tom. Thank you. We thank you. Uh, wish you well in your next. Venture and John, we wish you well as you uh, take the helm at Massport. Look forward to it. Um, appreciate your your being here today with with me and Josh. So uh, that concludes the Transit Matters podcast. Uh, we'll see you next time. I'm Jim Aloisi, and I'm Josh Fairchild. Thank you for joining us. I would like to reach out my hand. Oh, Messiah, oh, tell you to run.